Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. Of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As die-hard conservative. I look this guy for wisdom. Patriots, lovers of freedom, all across this fertile nation. It's been a, exactly a week since I've been behind this microphone speaking to you, my friends and patriots. And today is, well, I, I think I say this time and time again, but this is truly the most important of the, this is the 36th podcast I've done since I began. And I often say, this uh, episode is the most important episode yet, and I mean it time and time again because, well, we're reaching an inflection point. We're reaching an inflection point, that point at which the United States of America passes the point of no return. Now, you've likely heard in the media from, uh, well, every source imaginable, whether you're watching CNN or Fox News or so on and so forth, But we have uh, a reconciliation bill. We have infighting in, uh, of course, the House right now. And there's a lot of drama brewing about the division within the ranks of the Democrat Party. Now, why? I want to explain exactly what's going on because there's a lot of confusion out there. I want to make the, as Rush Limbaugh, the great, great, late Rush Limbaugh, God rest his soul, would say, make the complex simple. What is going on and what is at stake? That's what I want to explain to you today on Thursday. Now, later today, there should be some kind of vote coming in the House. Uh, But I would predict that the infrastructure bill will be held hostage. Now, what is going on? There are two bills we have to talk about. They're not the same. Two different bills. You have... The infrastructure bill is the $1.2 trillion bill that was passed out of the Senate. Now, this was always tied to another bill. That's what they call the Build Back Better plan, which is the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Now, the reconciliation bill, which is the $3.5 trillion bill, it doesn't require a supermajority of votes in the Senate. It requires a simple majority. That means all the Democrats have to do to pass the $3.5 trillion bill, which is the social reengineering bill of America that has climate change in it, affordable housing that will destroy and devastate this country and ensure that, well, we sink into the depths of Marxism and totalitarian darkness forevermore. Now, the infrastructure bill was passed. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, they voted for it. And after that, shortly after, they proceeded with passing this resolution to get the ball moving towards passage of the $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill, the Social Reengineering Act. Now, 
The Democrats are up in arms saying Joe Manchin is violating his promise that he would vote for this. But no, Manchin, in the beginning, he always said he didn't like the price tag of the $3.5 trillion bill, and he wanted to get it down. But the Democrats here are sneaky, you know what. Now they are demanding, the radical leftists are demanding, that they will only pass the infrastructure bill if the reconciliation bill is passed at the same time. You see, they are seeing these two bills as inextricably linked. They are holding the American people hostage. Even the infrastructure bill, which is outrageous and has things in it that have nothing to do with infrastructure, well, that's not enough because that does not pass their radical Marxist agenda. And so they have strategically, well, failed, but strategically they have said from the beginning, all right, we're going to pass these two bills together or not at all. Now, I am going to bring in a radical Marxist who was on MSNBC to explain to you exactly what's going on. And I will offer my commentary. Now, this is a uh, House member, Democrat from Washington. Her name is Representative Pramila Jayapal. Now, she's on MSNBC and she's answering the question posed to her about what's going on. I'm going to play the clip and then we're going to get into it. Now, here we are today. And people want to frame this as progressives versus moderates. But let me just tell you, 96% of Democrats in the House and the Senate support the president's agenda, which is the Build Back Better agenda. And what we know is that 4% of members of the House and the Senate are not supporting the president's agenda, the Democratic agenda. Now, a couple things off the bat to uh, to point out. One, she talks about how this is not progressives versus moderates because 96% of the Democrat House members and Senate members are for this Marxist agenda. 4% are against it. The 4%, of course, in the Senate that are the main roadblocks to this are Kirsten Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin. So the real takeaway and lesson there is that 96% of the Democratic Party in Congress are radical communists, radical Marxists, radical leftist totalitarians who are hell-bent on destroying America. 4%, only 4% remaining in the Democratic Party care at least a little bit about this country, care a little bit about our posterity, care a little bit, a bit about not inflicting self-inflicting a suicidal wound on this country that will destroy America as we know it. And then, of course, she also, if you remember, says, you know, these 4% aren't supporting the Democrats' agenda, the president's agenda. Notice the uh, lack of attention to pointing out that this is not an American agenda. She doesn't say this is what the people want. This is not what the people want. And those people that do want it, sadly, once they get it, well, they're too dumb to actually realize that it's responsible for the inflation and the suicide of America. But this is the Democratic Party plan and President Joe Biden's plan, Obama's plan. If you heard uh, Nancy Pelosi's Freudian, Freudian slip recently about the Obama agenda, O'Biden agenda, I think she said. But I want to just continue to play her. Let's finish this through because it's very insightful. House progressives are very clear. We are not going to leave behind women. 
We are not going to leave behind people who need housing. We are not going to leave behind climate change, one of the most important issues that we are facing today. And the president is going to have to go to COP26 in just a little bit. And he's going to have to explain, if we leave behind climate, why the United States feels like we can make any kind of an agreement with the rest of the world or force the rest of the world to address climate change as a real issue. So this is, we're not leaving that behind. And that's why we can't vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill until we pass the Build Back Better Act, which is 70% or more of the president's agenda. Now, what is the agenda of this administration? Well, Schumer said, for example, after they passed the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and then shortly after began the process of getting this attached, essentially, $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill going. Well, he said the Democratic budget will bring a generational transformation to how our economy works for average Americans. Think about that generational transformation. They don't hide it anymore. It's out in the open. Now, this is what the divide is really about. You have the progressive Marxist, 96% of the Democratic Party in Congress, who are vowing not to support the Senate-passed infrastructure bill if the social spending plan attached, well, that they're attaching, essentially saying these two bills will be passed at the same time or not at all, neither of them, if it's not on the table. Now, they have been strategically assuming that passing the infrastructure bill alone, Senator Senator Bernie Sanders, let me put it this way, he said that if they pass the infrastructure bill alone, well, it will, quote, end all leverage that we have to pass a major reconciliation bill. So the Marxists won't pass infrastructure without also passing reconciliation, but the 4% that are, quote, unquote, moderates, Well, they want to pass the infrastructure bill and then deal with reconciliation later. They don't see that these have to be attached. Manchin, for example, thinks the infrastructure bill is needed, but the reconciliation bill can come later. We can address it later. We need to, we need to iron out all the problems. We need to get it down in size. And this is just absolutely remarkable. But they are, they know, look, we know Biden's approval is plummeting. And we know that in 2022, it looks more and more like they will lose all majorities they have. They will lose the House and the Senate. And that's why they are banking on this political pressure, putting these two things together to get it passed now, because they're running out of time. And that's why they're digging their heels in. They have essentially a year to get this done. They have a year to fundamentally transform America before they face the blowback in politics because of the overt, obvious, undeniable failures of this administration. Whether it's the border crisis, whether it's Afghanistan leaving American hostages behind, whether it's any number of things. And so that's why they're pushing so hard right now. And so the the radical leftists are entrenched and they're refusing to pass the infrastructure bill, if they don't also pass the infrastructure bill, they're trying to 
put an inordinate amount of pressure on Manchin and Cinema to go along. But I don't see them buckling. There's no indication that they should or would buckle. Now, we're not safe. It's just... A, it, basically, what it shows is just how insane the Democrats are. That Manchin and Cinema, these two Democrats, they will not go along with this. Even they won't go along with this. And of course, you know... Pelosi kind of set this up herself. You know, she's always hailed for her strategic brilliance. You know, she promised a vote on the infrastructure bill by September 27th. And then, of course, 27th came and she extended it to Thursday today. And the, the goal was always to intensify pressure to advance the $3.5 trillion social spending plan, the Marxist agenda that addresses climate change, that destroys our uh, energy independence, that will create this universal pre-K. All these things that were rejected from the infrastructure bill as they debated the issues. But we're in a lot of trouble if this passes because we already are seeing inflation rear its ugly head. And we're getting now into another situation too that is an argument about the debt ceiling. This is something on top of what we have going on. I'm going to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're going to get into the debt ceiling, what that's about. And we're going to go back and look at historically what the debt ceiling is, how it came into be. And we're going to listen to Ronald Reagan, who addressed the debt ceiling back in 1981. And we're going to see how dangerous situation, how dangerous that situation is today versus even back then. Where we're headed and why we're looking, staring down off the cliff right now. This is Drew Allen. I'll be right back. And we're back. Now, the current debt. Well, it's not quite current, but as of July 20th, let me put it this way. As of July 20th, 2020, the debt held by the public, that's the United States of America, we always, the public, we own the debt. All right? We're on the hook for what the government spends on our personal credit card. Um, as it stands, it's about $26.5 trillion. Now, the statutory debt limit is $28.5 trillion. Okay? So, I want to explain what the debt ceiling is. The debt ceiling is a limit, all right? A limit on how much money the federal government can borrow. More specifically, it's how much debt the federal government is allowed to add to the total of cumulative debt. So as it stands today, the current statutory debt limit is $28.5 trillion, which is a number that cannot be even fathomed $28.5 trillion. And so, of course, the Democrats want to add another $3.5 trillion on top of the $1.5 trillion that they've already voted to add. And so they cannot proceed with their Marxist agenda unless the debt ceiling is raised. 
So here is the politics at play, okay? What the Republicans are doing and what the Democrats want. Now, the let me go to the Hill, all right? I don't love the Hill because the Hill is a, uh, is a rag in many ways. But in this case, they explain it pretty specifically. Because the Democrats could, could raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation, the bill they're trying to pass. But Schumer in the Senate is saying Democrats cannot and will not raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation. Now, this is the game that's being played. I'm going to read this article and I'll explain what I'm talking about. So Schumer's saying the Democrats won't raise the nation's borrowing limit as part of a sweeping spending bill, the reconciliation bill. And what the Republicans are trying to do, for example, they're trying to force Democrats to raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation. So it's not bipartisan. They're putting it at the feet of the Democrats, which they could do it if they wanted to. But the Democrats won't put that option on the table. What the Republicans are doing, because look, if if the Democrats raise the debt ceiling through reconciliation, they have to attach a number, a numerical value to what the debt ceiling is going to be. Are you going to make it 40 trillion? Are you going to make it 30 trillion? Are you going to make it 60 trillion? What are you going to do? So the Republicans are forcing the Democrats into a situation to say, this is what our debt ceiling is going to be how much money we're willing to borrow and spend, and so on and so forth. But if the Democrats go through reconciliation, yeah, they have to put a a, a numerical value on it. So what the Democrats want is they want to suspend the debt ceiling. A suspension is different. A A suspension doesn't force anyone to say, this is... Oh, we're willing to raise the debt ceiling to $40 trillion. No, no, no. Suspending it doesn't put a numerical value attached. Suspending the debt ceiling just says, well, for the next X amount of time, we can just spend past the debt ceiling. And so the Republicans, which, look, I am loath to... I do not like Mitch McConnell, as you know. He's a rhino. He is a grave danger to this republic. But in this case, he is a brilliant strategist, Okay. I'm not saying I like McConnell, but I'm saying in this particular instance, he's right. He is trying to outmaneuver the Democrats. He's trying to force them to say, this is what we want to spend. This is how much we're going to spend. But I'm going to play a clip from Ronald Reagan to put things in perspective about our debt ceiling today, how much we're spending, how dangerous it is. Well, I guess contextually, I want to explain how dangerous it is to us if we don't get this under control. If we don't force the government to live within their means versus them trying to spend as much money as possible on our credit card and forcing us to live within the means that they dictate dictate to us. But here's Ronald Reagan back in 1981 talking about this very issue. Today, the debt is $934 billion. So-called temporary increases or extensions in the debt ceiling have been allowed 21 times in these 10 years. And now I've been forced to ask for another increase in the debt ceiling or the government will be unable to function past the middle of February. And I've only been here 16 days. Before we reach the day when we can reduce the debt ceiling, 
we may, in spite of our best efforts, see a national debt in excess of a trillion dollars. Now, this is a figure that's literally beyond our comprehension. We know now that inflation results from all that deficit spending. Government has only two ways of getting money other than raising taxes. It can go into the money market and borrow, competing with its own citizens and driving up interest rates, which it has done, or it can print money, and it's done that. Both methods are inflationary. Now, I know that <clears throat> debt is not a sexy issue of our time amidst all the social issues that we're focused on, amidst uh, immigration and compassion and all these things that are the talking points of the drive-by media. But inflation does not discriminate. And what we are doing to our country through this debt is not only untenable, but it is suicidal. There you have Ronald Reagan talking about how insane approaching a $1 trillion debt is. And we are rapidly approaching $30 trillion in debt. We know what the consequence is because we've been here before. Increased home prices. The devaluation of the dollar. And who does that affect? It affects every American citizen regardless of their race, regardless of anything. And the Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling further. And you have Joe Biden out there and Jen Psaki and the Democrats claiming that this $3.5 trillion Build Back Better plan, which is a joke, Build Back Better is destroy America. Build Back Better is destroy us. Destroy our dollar, destroy our incomes, destroy our livelihoods. But they want to raise the debt ceiling further. And this will bring about the suicide of America. In addition to everything else that's in this actual bill that will transform America from a capitalist country that embraces freedom, embraces the individuality, and forces us to be dependent upon the government and perpetuity. But they're calling this, well, they're saying this won't cost us anything. Won't cost us anything? Are these people insane? The answer, of course, is yes. But of course, Biden, when he's promoting this egregious anti-American reconciliation bill, Build Back Better bill, $3.5 trillion bill, he tweets out, and he also said, my Build Back Better agenda costs zero dollars. And it adds zero dollars to the national debt. No, it adds three and a half trillion to the debt. These people are liars. They're lying to our faces and they're economic illiterates. Forget about even the three and a half trillion dollar price tag. I already told you we're nearing 30 trillion in debt. And he's telling us this $3.5 trillion addition adds zero dollars to the national debt? These people, who 
who's going to pay this? How are we ever going to get rid of the 30 trillion nearly that already exists? We're going to add three and a half trillion. It costs us nothing. It costs us everything. We are, we are suffocating. We are falling to our knees. Atlas shrugged, you know, under the, the weight of the debt of this country. And I mean, I've said time and time again, and I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but it's just that we're in a cold civil war. What these people are trying to do to this country, there is no moderation on our side. There is no compromise on our side. The government does not create anything. They only take from the American people. When they pass legislation that costs money, well, they don't generate any income. They have to take that income from the American citizenry. And they're not even focused on the debt at all. They want to increase the debt. And they have the audacity to tell us that adding $3.5 trillion to the debt adds $0 to the national debt? We are not being governed by adults. We're being governed by not even children. Just ignorant morons. You know, people say all the time, these people couldn't run a lemonade stand and make a profit. And that's true. That's absolutely true. They are robbing us. They are robbing our posterity of their future. They're destroying the value of the dollar. They are ensuring that Americans in the years ahead will not have opportunity. Housing prices. Look, every problem that we have in this country today is because of the government and their intervention, their regulations towards businesses and private citizens, their taxation of private citizens. You don't have to be a rich person to look at your paycheck and understand that the vast majority of it is going to the federal government, to the state, to the city. We have to work harder and harder every year to earn less and less. To pay for what? The whimsical uh, feelings and inclinations of politicians? That's not America. That's not American. I mean, all of it gets into cliche at some point. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. You have to, I want to explain conservatism. I got to say this. So long as I've been doing this podcast, the information that I'm able to gather is that the vast majority of my listenership, you listening to me, are millennials. From the age of 28 to 35, I've got other demographics in there as well. But when I started this podcast, my goal was to encourage, to illuminate, to educate, to be someone, a patriot, that people in my age range as a 34-year-old could lean on to trust and to encourage you to speak up and use your voice. In so many ways, look, 
the greatest, the greatest pandemic afflicting America is not COVID-19. It is totalitarianism. It's communism. It's Marxism. And so I speak up to be a a real vaccine. A vaccine against the totalitarianism infecting the hearts and minds of the American citizenry. And the vaccination against that is truth and common sense and rationality and history. And that's always been my objective and that's my strong suit. And so I'm here to speak the truth, to give people, inject them with the serum of truth so that they have the tools to combat the idiocy that is out there. And this is untenable. What these people are doing to my generation. You know, I got to tell you, I sit behind this microphone and I am honored. I am honored. I got to tell you this too about my demographics that I have access to the information of. I want to continue to grow my audience. But the audience that I have comes back week after week and listens to me. And you don't have to agree with everything I say, although you should. This is me being having a sense of humor, by the way, if you don't understand me. But you should, because I'm 99.9% of the time right. But I have the same number of people coming back time and time again. And I had dinner with my wife tonight, and I was saying, gosh, Alexandra, you know, I just want to keep growing my audience, growing my audience, you know? I want to get to as many people And give them this truth and give them what they need to fight this tyranny that confronts us. And she said to me, honey, that'll come. That'll come with time. But what you should be proud of is the fact that you have returning listenership. You have a loyal audience. You don't have people who tune in one week and tune out the next week. You have the same people coming back week after week after week. And she's right, and I'll say this about women, and I hate to say it, I don't really hate to say it, but but they're right so often. They have a perspective. And we men are nothing without the women that surround us. I want to make that clear. I am nothing, nothing without my wife, without her support, without her own genius and encouragement. But I'm off on a tangent there. But you know, I got to be honest. You know, when I talk to you, you're like family to me. And I sit here and I express myself. Sometimes I'm upset. But my job every time is just to illuminate, to bring to everyone's attention, as busy as you all are in your own lives. You know, it's you and I who are contributing to society. It's you and I who are focused on saving and preserving this country. And I went on a radio show, a couple of radio shows today, and did some interviews. And I made the point. Look, Superman is not coming to save us. That's the bad news. But the good news is, if we look in the mirror, you are Superman. I am Superman. The Republican Party alone is not going to save us, okay? It is up to the American citizenry. And it's our fight to fight. And that's why, you know what? I am so grateful that the majority of my audience is people in their 20s and 30s. Because I got to tell you, 
It is our fight. Saving this country is our generation's fight. And we have to dig deep and look in the mirror as well and look at our own reflection and ask ourselves, are we willing to sacrifice for this country? Are we willing to fight for this country? I am, and I know you are too. We've got to continue to grow our numbers and our forces because we the people will save this country. Politicians will not. Politicians are involved in this. Politicians are inextricably linked to saving this country through peaceful avenues. But really, it's up to you and me. And we have to acknowledge that we're in this situation because, let's face it, generations that preceded us failed to do the hard work. They got lazy. They got fat and happy. And yes, they were busy working. Yes, they were busy providing. Yes, they were busy keeping this economy going. But the left is organized. The left has taken over every institution in this country, whether it's the public schools, the universities, the FBI, now the military they're encroaching on. Everywhere we look, there is corruption. And I'm not a victim, but we have to be realists. This came about because other people, when it was their watch, didn't do their job. They didn't fight back when it mattered. And now we're in this situation. And so you and I, the young, the healthy, the energetic, we are the ones who must answer the call in our generation and our time today to fight and save this country. I'm all in, and I know you are too. This is Drew Allen. I'll be right back. Now, I want to hit a uh, number of stories here, kind of a uh, fast-paced address of these issues before we get to some other things. Now, COVID is a bunch of frickin' baloney. Um, All the calls for vaccines. You know, we had Joe Biden the other day say, oh, now we need a 97, 98% vaccination rate so we can go back to normal. Go to H-E double hockey sticks, Harvard Business School. Here is a headline from the Wall Street Street Journal. Harvard Business School suspends most in-person MBA classes networking after COVID-19 outbreak. Despite high vaccination rate, graduate school said dozens of breakthrough infections required a temporary return to remote learning. Now get this. So Harvard University, right? So they've got something like a 95% vaccination rate. And despite reaching the pinnacle, the goal that now Joe Biden with his phony booster shot, uh, uh, you know, media fiasco. Well, they have what he's saying that the uh, country needs. And yet, despite having that and reaching that objective, well, Harvard has breakthrough cases. So the, the move to remote instruction for all first-year courses and some second-year courses will run until at least October 3rd, the school said, and it comes about a month after the start of classes. 
So this is one of the first instances, by the way, of a major university halting in-person instruction this fall and signifies the challenges that schools, screw it. Let me go on in this article. So Harvard University reported Monday that in the past week, 60 of 74 COVID-19 cases among students, faculty, and staff have been among graduate students. Uh, Let's go on. Where are the statistics that I actually care about? The university student population is 95% vaccinated and 96% of faculty and staff are fully immunized, according to the school. So a 95% vaccination rate amongst the student population, 96% of faculty and staff are fully immunized. This is such a joke. Such a joke. The vaccine is a joke. I am sorry, I'm not attacking the vaccinated, but Harvard University has a 95% vaccination rate amongst students and 96% amongst faculty and staff, and they have outbreak cases. Don't tell me this is a vaccine. This is not a vaccine. This vaccine is a horrendous joke on Americans and mankind. When you get a vaccine, it protects you against a virus. This vaccine obviously doesn't work. How else do you explain 95% vaccinated student population and they're shutting down classes because of an outbreak of COVID? And then you had, I got to get into this too, with Joe Biden. What the heck is going on? Did you see the photo? Joe Biden got his booster shot for uh, all the world to watch. A booster shot. So he's fully vaccinated. He's sitting there in a chair wearing a mask as he gets a booster shot. And it turns out he's not in the White House. They built a set. Nothing you see, my friends, is real. This is all a scam. There is nothing that can evoke the trust of the American citizenry with this administration or the government at all. The credibility gap is blown wide open. We all need to just live our lives and move on. COVID's here. The vaccines aren't doing a darn thing. And it just gives more ammunition to the fact that these vaccine passports are a joke as well. We know, of course, that these 14,000 plus Haitians and the other almost a million by the end of this year, illegal immigrants who've come into this country, allowed by this administration, well, they're not being subjected to COVID tests. They're just pouring in through the borders. And yet we're supposed to believe that COVID is the greatest threat to, to Americans and mankind ever. And yet they don't care when these illegal immigrants pour in here. No, no, no. You and I, you know, the illegal immigrant today has more rights that they don't actually have, but they're granted more rights than the American citizenry. And that's unbelievable. We now know, of course, too, by the way, that the FBI was intimately involved in the January 6th insurrection. Shall we read? I think we shall. 
The FBI has been outed in a New York Times piece for having undercover agents working the Capitol riot on January 6th. Furthermore, the FBI agent was collaborating with a Proud Boys informant who confirmed there was no centralized plot to overturn the 2020 election results on Donald Trump's behalf. As as has been oft repeated, the pro-Trump attendees were not part of any pre-planned attack. Now, as scores of Proud Boys, you know, they love to point out the Proud Boys. The Proud Boys are an insignificant group of nothing in America. They are a nothing when you compare them to the Antifa movement or BLM. They haven't burned, they haven't killed, they haven't done anything. But anyway, as scores of apparently Proud Boys made their way, chanting and shouting toward the Capitol on January 6th, One member of the far-right group was busy texting a real-time account of the march. Who was he texting? The recipient was his FBI handler. In the middle of an unfolding melee that shook a pillar of American democracy, the peaceful transfer of power, the borough had an informant in the crowd, providing an inside glimpse of the action, according to confidential records obtained by the New York Times. And the informant's version of events, the Proud Boys, famous for their street fights, were largely following a pro-Trump mob consumed by a herd mentality rather than carrying out any type of pre-planned attack. Now, this herd mentality, by the way, goes back to the fact that before this, we know that there were uh, agents involved that were encouraging this behavior to take place. It was a setup. Now, the New York Times piece corroborates what was only recently labeled a far-right conspiracy theory. Now, the FBI, they had undercover agents working the January 6th faux insurrection who didn't do anything to stop extremist groups from turning the Electoral College into an utterly chaotic mess. The Times provides details of how the FBI agent was working one extremist group during the developing capital riot. Now, this goes back to what happened with the Whitmer case. Remember the kidnapping account? You had the FBI who actually um, forced themselves into this organization, this group, and they're the ones who even planted the seed for the kidnapping. And in fact, FBI informants rose to the top of the food chain there in leadership positions, and so they tried to create this to set people up. Let's go on. After meeting his fellow Proud Boys at the Washington Monument that morning, The FBI informant described his path to the Capitol grounds where he saw barriers knocked down and Trump supporters streaming into the building, the records show. At one point, his handler, that would be the FBI agent, appeared not to grasp that the building had been breached, the records show, and asked the informant to keep him in the loop, especially if there was any any, any violence. So this FBI agent is in contact with some member of the Proud Boys saying, ooh, let me know if there's any violence. These people are inciting violence. The FBI has become a terrorist organization in the United States of America. They are creating circumstances, provoking circumstances, so that the left in this country, working in hand with the Democratic Party, can have ammunition to attack and destroy their political opponents. So the Times, New York Times, they underscored that the FBI had far more advanced and real-time knowledge of the developing riot than previously admitted. This came 
amidst the decision handed down from the highest levels of the government to limit the National Guard presence due to purported concerns about optics and to limit the capability of Capitol Police to adequately respond. So there's no preset plot. And so the records show now that this FBI informant who was affiliated with a Midwest chapter of the Proud Boys, so this FBI informant, before the January 6th quote-unquote insurrection, before the speech that Trump gave, he had already affiliated himself with the Proud Boys. And he even denied that the group intended to use violence that day. In these lengthy interviews, the records say, this FBI informant also denied that the extremist organization planned in advance to storm the Capitol. There was no insurrection. None of this was pre-planned. But you have an FBI informant who is working with the Proud Boys, apparently hopeful that something would happen. And if it did happen, telling the individual who was in contact with the Proud Boys to let him know if something did happen. I mean, what we're experiencing, this is the kind of activity that takes place in third world countries and enemy nations in which we try to go in and create conflict to achieve a desired outcome for the United States of America. The FBI is treating America like a third world country. This is so outrageous. This is something that comes out of Nazi Germany. And we know, of course, that there was no plan to overturn the presidential election results. This was organized. This was, they aided and abetted January 6th like they aided and abet the Taliban, like they aid and abet illegal immigrants to come into this country. Nothing you see is real. Just like the photo of Joe Biden getting his booster shot. He's on a set. He's not even in the White House. Why? Why is this happening? Why is this taking place? These people have no credibility whatsoever. You and I are the enemy of the Democrat Party. America is the enemy of the Democrat Party. And just like has been predicted since the founding of this country, from George Washington on to Lincoln, and beyond that, our nation's demise will be due to national suicide. And the Democrat Party is a party of American suicide. Anyway, let's move on to another story. Now, I uh, live in California, but I was born and raised in Texas. I am a Texan. And, you know, Greg Abbott, who seems to be a decent enough person, but totally, totally unwilling to do what's required to protect Texas. I don't understand it. I really don't. In fact, I met Abbott Many, many, many years ago, when I was a National Junior Honor Society member, he came and spoke to my middle school at that time and addressed us. And I had great respect and reverence for him at the time. And I, look, he's soft. He's soft. Whether it's because he's afraid of media pressure, I don't know what it is. He's definitely not a liberal Democrat, but he's certainly not a staunch conservative who's willing to defend Texas, and the rest of this country. I want to play an interview with a potential Republican challenger to his that explains what I've been talking about for a long time. 
Why is Governor Abbott in Texas not using every uh, ability at his disposal to protect the border? Why? Well, we have a, a, a challenger that was interviewed on the Tucker Carlson show who explains and lays out what he would do and what Abbott could do if he had the cojones to actually defend Texas. I'm going to play the clip now. Senators are running to replace him as governor. One of them is Don Huffines, a former state senator. He joins us tonight with his plan to fix the border. Don, thanks so much for coming on. So if elected, how will you handle what is a legitimate crisis at the southern border? Well, Tucker, you and I both know that the federal government's never going to secure the border. They never have and they never will. Right. This clearly is an invasion. And I can tell you, I will never ask permission from the federal government to secure the Texas border. I'm going to use the United States Constitution, that's Article 1, Section 10, which clearly gives states the authority to defend themselves from an invasion. I'm going to engage all the Texas military, our National Guard, 20,000 or more, and we're going to secure the whole river. And if anyone gets across, we're going to immediately take them back to the other side. There you have it. Common sense solution to the problem at the border. We know the federal government is not going to participate in defending the border. We have Mayorkas. Uh, we have uh, the entire Biden administration saying they refuse to build a wall because they don't believe in balls. It, balls. <laughs> they don't have balls. Sorry. They don't believe in walls. They don't believe in protecting the border. And yet, they also say at the si same time as liars which is, well, all we have today is patho pathological liars in the Democratic Party that are saying, oh yeah, the border's secure. Meanwhile, they release nearly a million illegal immigrants into this nation. They say, well, um, you know, they've been given a court summons to come back in two months. And of course, we know nine out of 10 times they don't show up. Why would they? There's no repercussions for it. But here's this guy who should be elected governor of, of, of Texas, if it, Texas if he's going to follow through with it, saying, yeah, I'm going to spend money building a wall and I'm going to send the National Guard down there. And that's what Abbott could do right now if he wanted to. But he's not. Now, speaking of uh, not protecting this nation, there's another story that's fantastic. The uh, Obamas just broke ground, finally, finally, on their presidential center. And they're calling it a way to give back to Chicago and to the South Side. Now, let's get into this. This is from the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. Uh, former President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Mybelle Obama returned to Chicago on Tuesday for the official groundbreaking for the Obama Presidential Center promising it will be a university for activism and social change. <clears throat> there you have it. You know what is actually this means? The Obama Center is going to be, you remember the Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda training camps? Well, this will be the equivalent in America. The Obama Presidential Library will be ground zero for the Obama Marxist Al-Qaeda terrorist training camp in America. That's what this is really going to be about. They're going to have a new place where they can educate, indoctrinate, and create new Marxists to destroy America. 
That's what this presidential library will all be about because Obama's presidency was a disaster. Before the Biden administration, the Obama administration was the worst presidency in American history, period. Sadly, he did not fail. And I wish nothing but failure for the Biden administration. I wish them nothing but failure because their failure is America's success. And Obama and Biden and this Democratic Party are anti-American Marxists who are trying to finally bring about the destruction and annihilation of America. They want to fundamentally transform this country. They've used COVID to do it, and soon they're poised to use climate change to do much the same. And this goes full circle, as I will say. Saki says, oh, we're going to circle back, but she never circles back. I'm circling back because I have integrity, morality, well, and I'm smart. These other people are morons. But it comes back to this infrastructure bill paired with the reconciliation bill to fundamentally destroy America. Now, I do not believe it will, will pass, as I said before. Mansion and cinema are not going to sign up for it. But I want to make it clear, too, this is all strategic from the beginning, and it's coming back to bite them in the rears. And this is cause for hope. Because, look, the Democrats miscalculated. They overstepped. They moved so far radically left, so quickly, they underestimated the fact that the American people are not a majority Marxist. They're not on board for this radical leftist agenda. And so, you have to understand that the Senate and the House pass separate bills, when they're, even when they're trying to pass the same piece of legislation. So infrastructure, the Senate passes, and then the House theoretically would, would create their own infrastructure bill, and then the Senate and House would get to, together and create one bill that they could agree upon. And so desperate have the Democrats been that the House deferred to the Senate they didn't even give any input on the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Usually, the Senate would produce a bill, then the House would produce their own separate bill, and then the House and Senate would have to, well, they'd have to figure out all the differences and create one bill to send to the president's desk. Well, Nancy Pelosi was so desperate to get this bill passed that they didn't have input. They basically told the Senate, pass the $1.2 trillion bill, and then we'll just sign off on it. If you agree to also give us the reconciliation bill. But they did not understand that Cinema, who's from Arizona, and Manchin would still not support it. And that's why they're in the pickle they're in. They underestimated. They overcalculated. Because they are divorced from reality. And they thought that they could just simply force this bill down the American people's throats. And so that is cause for a bit of good news. But this is Drew Allen, and I'll be right back to explain conservatism. And to those of you in my age range, I want to explain what conservatism means, why it's important, and why it is our last best hope.
That, of course, was Boston's more than a feeling, and conservatism, of course, too, is more than a feeling. It is ideologically sound. It is based on all of mankind's combined human experience. It is the greatest philosophy, the most effective philosophy, the soundest philosophy in mankind's history. Now, what does it mean to be a conservative? People don't often understand because, of course, the left has indoctrinated people to assign progressivism, liberalism, leftism, Democrat Party as cool, as hip, as good, as moral. And it's none of those things. Conservatism is the way forward. Now, conservatism is the philosophy of freedom. The embrace of individualism. The idea that if Americans, if the individual is freed from the chains of government, if that individual is left to his or her own devices, not bogged down and mired in, well, government interference. If that person is given the freedom, well, they can become the greatest version of themselves. Conservatism is the belief that the individual has the ability to achieve that which they desire. It's not monetary, mind you. Not every individual is going to become a millionaire or a billionaire. But each individual is endowed with their own unique capabilities. Their own unique Minds and hearts and souls and ambitions and talents. And the government's role is to unleash that, to encourage it. Not to tell you what you can and cannot do, but to create a situation in which you, the individual, is free to become that which you want to become. That is conservatism. We don't believe in collectivism. We don't believe in, well, the, the equal outcome. We believe in equal opportunity. That you, the individual, should have the opportunity, unfettered, uninhibited, to achieve that which you want. If you want to become a CEO, great. If you want to become a lawyer or a doctor, or if you want to be a plumber, that's up to you. And the beauty of America is that we don't have a class system. Conservatives don't believe in a class system, nor do we look at color of the skin. 
nor do we look at where you come from, what your circumstances are when you're brought into this world. What we believe in is individual responsibility and accountability. We believe in learning from our our mistakes. We believe in, well, limitless opportunity for the individual. We don't believe in victimhood. Nor do we look to other people, especially the government, to solve our problems. Because the government is the problem. For so much of uh, our history, this was the dominating, predominant ideology. That you could pick yourself up from the bootstraps. But what we have today is government interference. For example, if you look at certain minority groups. Well, the government interferes in their ability to achieve what God has given them in terms of their own abilities and talents. They kneecap these communities. And they teach people that you cannot, you cannot succeed because of X, Y, and Z. But certain communities, for example, when you come when it comes to school choice, well, the government is responsible for these individuals not succeeding. They put people on welfare and they teach people that they're victims, that they can't achieve, that they can't become and achieve whatever their dreams are because something's in the way. But government is always in the way. When you're born into a community and your only school opportunity is a school that fails individuals and you tell these individuals that they're not allowed, not permitted to go to other schools that would give them better opportunities, you're harming their opportunities. You're removing their chances for success. But we conservatives believe in you and me. We believe in the individual. And we want to give you every opportunity you can to succeed. And we don't want to teach you that someone else can solve your problems because no one else can solve your problems. You can teach yourself. Abraham Lincoln taught himself to become a lawyer. In today's day and age, Abraham Lincoln would never become anything, amount to anything, because he would be told, well, Oh, you can't become a lawyer. You can't teach yourself that. You're a victim. You're impoverished. You can't rise to anything. And it's this group's fault or that group's fault that's oppressing you. None of that. We don't believe in that. We encourage every American to unshackle themselves from limitations. And we believe the role of the government is to create an atmosphere in which you can succeed, to get off your back, to reduce regulations, to reduce spending. We tell the American citizen 
There's nothing you cannot achieve within the scope of your abilities. And that is the true calling of America. Whether it's westward expansion or anything else. America is not the greatest country in the face of the earth. On the face of the earth in history. Because the government did it for you. That's baloney. We're the greatest country in the history of the world. Because of rugged individualism. Because of small government. Because Americans throughout our history have not seen limitations. We don't believe in limitations. We believe in limitless opportunities that we can achieve anything we put our minds to without interference. But the left in this country, the Marxist, the Democrat Party, tells the individual that they don't have opportunity. That they need the government to do things for them. That the government is, is the answer to any of their problems. That's not true. That's a victimhood. But we conservatives, the sky's the limit. But the Democrats want to drag us back down into, into the swamp from which we crawled. But we, we want to continue our climb into the stars. We believe that government is the problem, not the solution. The Democrats believe you are the problem and the government is the solution. This is why there is no compromise. That's what we are fighting for. To instill in every American citizen that they must be proud, patriotic, and grateful for what they have. And that in their red blood, red-blooded Americanism, that they are unique in all the world. Because they do not need government to solve their problems. They can solve their own problems. That we as a community can answer our call. That we as individuals are moral. That we love one another. That we are bound by the Constitution. That we have unalienable rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, our amendment rights. We can defend ourselves. We can support ourselves and our family. If the government will just back off, that is the true heritage of Americans. The government is not our master. We are the government's master. We are not the servant of the ruling elite. We are the elite. The government exists in a limited scope to protect and defend the American citizen from external forces, to cultivate a capitalist environment in which you and I each have one right, and that is the right of freedom. The right equally to pursue our dreams and ambitions. 
And while we might not all become these same millionaires or billionaires, we can all achieve that which is within our scope and within our desire. If you want to become a doctor, that's up to you. If you can go to medical school and pass the exams, you can do it. If you can't do it, maybe you're meant to do something else. But time and time again, we ignore the fact that why is it that this country is the greatest country on the face of the earth? We're different than every country that's come before us. We have a constitution. We have unalienable rights. We have the right to free speech, the right to bear arms. We're equal in the eyes of God. This is not the case in every other country. We the people, we the people are great. And because we the people are great, this nation is great. Because we the people are moral, this country is moral. And that's what we're fighting. A moral battle to reclaim America. Conservatism is the way forward. Conservatism is the result of thousands of years of failure in mankind's history. Conservatism is the answer to tyranny. And I'm here to tell you and encourage you that conservatism is cool. The belief that we can achieve and do anything. The belief that we are responsible for our own fate. The freedom that comes from the acknowledgement that we are responsible for our actions, responsible for our futures, responsible for our past mistakes. There is no one to blame for failure except ourselves. And we as an American community, an American family, we don't need the government to steal from us and give to someone else. We're a moral people. We must take care of one another. It must not be forced from the government through taxation, through stealing from us, through the federal government to give to another. No one has any right to anything you have or I have. You earned it. I earned it. And those who depend upon welfare, who live off of welfare, well, they're suckers. They're slaves to the government that tells them they're nothing, that tells them that they can't achieve without the government. The government is amoral. The government who says, you can't do anything, and that's why I'm gonna give you this money. I'm gonna pay for your living the rest of your life. You shackle these individuals, and we conservatives reject that. We say, take the shackles off, stop giving them money. People must hit hard times. People must fight for what they have. People must fight for their families and friends. That's what we believe is the higher calling. And that's what conservatism is to me. A belief in responsibility. A belief in autonomy. Freedom. Independence. For better or for worse. But each of you Each American citizen 
is not guaranteed equal outcome, equal results, but we are guaranteed equal opportunity. And that's what you and I fight for day in and day out, and that's what we'll continue to fight for to destroy this Marxist cancer attacking our country. This is Drew Allen. God bless you, and until next time.